All right. Well, in that case, um, Mike has had the joy of reading uh, Slavoj Žižek's recent um, pandemic book, and so have I. Yeah, we read the pandemic. It looks like panic, but it's pandemic. Yeah, I thought okay. it was panic. Thought I'd need anyway. Um, yeah, so it's this little book that he seems to have pumped out. Like, when did it come out? Like, it's already like I feel like we're a little bit late to the game already. And and weirdly already, I thought the book seemed a little stale, which we'll get into a little bit as we go. But it came out very quickly. So yeah. what was the publishing on this thing? Uh, panic, damn, damn, demic. Uh, first printing 2020. Well, okay, obviously. So May 8th. May 8th, okay. Yes, and that's when it was released. So he must have written it, like, um, in, Yeah. I think the latest date March. that I noticed was, like, March 22nd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he wrote it in, in March of 2020. Right. Like basically right as the pandemic was kind of setting in and, and social distancing measures were were just first sort of being enacted. They'd been enacted in China and they were sort of just hitting Europe. Yeah. So anyway, at any rate, this is this is Zizek's kind of like um, foray into, or, or just sort of like, you know, immediate analysis of, of the pandemic. I And it's the first time I've ever read a Nietzsche a Zizek book. But you are a little bit more versed in, in the ways of the Zizek. Is that right, Zeke? Yep, I've, I've read several several books of his. Um, I went through a big Zizek phase uh, during probably the Obama years, um, I guess would be the way to put it. So um, back when... Uh, his relevance or when his topics of interest were like kind of only only interesting if you were like to the left of the mainstream Democratic Party and your daily discourse and your daily arguments were kind of with people who were either annoyingly too woke and were going to cancel you or were maybe not woke enough and you found problematic and so Zizek was the kind of reader or a kind of writer you might find talking about that kind of space. Yeah, no, there was definitely a minute where like there wasn't a, a lot going on on the left and Zizek was sort of one of, it was like Zizek and Chomsky were kind of the, the two guys, right? Yeah, a couple of old guys. Uh, yeah. Which generally is the wave on the left, I guess. Uh, um if Bernie and Corbin and all those people are of any indication, but uh, yeah, he's, so he's a, and I guess just a little biographical point. He grew up in communist Yugoslavia. He's continues to be a communist. And one of the nice things about him is with, you know, a reasonable degree of authenticity, you can say he is a, a, a shameless like ideologue for, uh, a communist left-wing project. He's not. Um, he's not like uh, uh, anything softer than that, you know, or at least he. I, I don't think he is. So, um, 
you know, especially at a time when um, left wing stuff was supposed to be basically, um, well, capitalism under Obama, uh, Zizek was a nice read for me because he's very um, focused on criticizing capitalism, which is sometimes not given much importance, even on the left. Yeah. And so like, um, yeah. And so if you're, you know, we, we did a, another episode actually on remembering now about Egypt, didn't we? Like about what, a year ago, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, probably his biggest moment recently and maybe in his whole career in terms of uh, global attention was the debate of the century, him and Jordan Peterson, University of Toronto, uh, a month yeah. debates. Oh no, it wasn't a month debates. No, it was something it was else. something something on its own. It was just its own thing. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, basically harnessing the power of YouTube nerds, aggrieved white male basement dweller neats or whatever. Yeah. And they they <laughs> kind of share a kind of hatred of political correctness. The two of them, right? They do, so, and they share devoted fan bases who kind of autodidactically follow their their sort of um, yeah, scriptural philosophies to the letter, right? So right. people who think that um, that having all the details of, of, of the of the canon there helps you argue effectively right. your enemies. Um, and that was kind of how it was back before 2016, right? Like, or, and, and it's probably even more now to, <laughs> to a greater extent, like is you, you, you know, you, you have, um, you have a, a, a political stance and you spend all of your time like um, beating people over the head with it on, on Twitter or something. And, uh, and you look to these figures like Zizek who actually know what they're talking about and you read a bunch of their stuff and you, you kind of use that to bolster what you're saying. Right. And uh, yeah, so I think he, he gained sort of cachet because there were people on the left looking for that. They wanted to win the online culture wars. All right. Well, um, that makes sense. So should we get to the book? Let's so, do it. Basically, here's how I see it. Um, what this book is, is a kind of uh, a move, which, which isn't made exclusively by Zizek, right? Like this is something that I think is pretty common among people on the left, like the kind of thing that you say <laughs> about this viruses that has got us all penned in inside, whatever, right? Which is that, um, you know, the virus itself is kind of a brute fact, right? All it is is uh, this kind of self-replicating, half-living, half-dead thing, right? It's a sort of brute fact of nature, if you want to use sort of Sartrean language, going back a couple episodes, right? And um, all it's really done is highlight or make evidence or accelerate uh, sort of problems that were of human making and that were kind of bubbling under the surface, right? So all, all that the virus has done really is sort of force us to confront um, the sort of uh, tensions and problems already working out within you know, modern global capitalism or whatever you want to call it, right? So basically, uh, what Zizek's claiming here, right, is that uh, what this is is just a, a catastrophe that forces us to ask the question, what's wrong with our system? 
such that this could have been the catastrophe that it is, right? So why is our society or our system so fucked up such that when this thing appears, it throws everything off, right? All of a sudden we're disrupted, all of a sudden we don't know how to deal with it. Why can't we deal with it? Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that way, it's not a lot different from a lot of other things that have kind of been happening since 2016, right? Like, that's what, that's what leftists said about Donald Trump, right? Right. <laughs> and about Brexit and about, um, you know, what else? The Australian bushfires, right? Like all these, the refugee crisis, right? Um, all these things are just sort of showing us uh, exactly what's what's wrong, right? Like, like these things are only crises for us because something's already a problem. They're symptoms. They aren't themselves the disease, right? And so like this disease even is actually a kind of symptom of, of the rot um, that we, didn't, we were all trying not to pay attention to. Basically. Yeah. And it's sort of forcing us to confront it. And so he's sort of saying, like, this is demanding that we sort of rethink everything, right? Um, fair enough. So uh, the way that he puts it in the first chapter, right, then, is that we're all then in the same boat. Um, that's what the... Uh, so I don't know what you think about that. But um, the sort of thing that, that uh, the virus has shown us Right. Is that like um, this actually isn't working for anybody. Right. Um, we have a, a way of thinking that like, OK, well, you know, uh, there is there's a wealthy elite that this is all working for. And they're the ones that that this is going to um, benefit in the end and so on and so forth. And he sort of makes this weird claim that like, you know, um, what's different about this thing versus something like Brexit or Trump. Right is that uh, with the virus, what you get is a recognition, even on the part of the powerful, right, that um, there's something wrong with our system, right? And so you, you've got to have, you, you get weird things happening, like uh, Netanyahu's Israel sort of extending a hand to the Palestinians and, and, and making sure everybody's okay in Palestine, right? Because there's a recognition that, uh, in terms of this, um, our future lies together. Right? Like well, you and, can't and save Israel without also saving Palestine. Yeah, like in that in that example, like that, it's not even an abandonment of the you know right wing Likudnik um, brutalization of Palestine policy. It's it's simply a, a forced recognition that um, in this context. Uh, even to follow through on your principles of being a defender of Israel, the only uh, appropriate response is to extend a hand of concern for Palestine because yeah. that, you know, uh, total protectionism is just a road to, you know, death, right? You're not going to be able to solve this problem as an isolated unit. Um, and he extends that to, to say that, you know, it's kind of interesting Um when we've seen like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, people who are um, by no means uh, center left or anything like that, and by no means have um, any affinity for like welfare state or or big government, uh, you know, tacitly admit that 
you know, they're going to have to indulge ideas like universal basic income. They're going to have to indulge massive sweeping uh, uh, stimulus. They're going to have to solve problems at the level of the not only the nation state, but even bigger. And yeah. That are, you know, unimaginable a year ago. Right. And I think I think that that sort of tension or that sort of dichotomy really sort of stretches the whole book. Right. On the one hand, it's 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 another thing that shows the rot. Right. It's it's a lens through which we can see all the problems. And on the other hand, it's a thing through which we don't have to use those old categories anymore. And it promises a new universal future. Right. Where we can do all the communist stuff. We just don't have to call it communist anymore. Right. And so we can imagine a world order that comes after this. That's no longer the old world order. Right. Um, and it's it's no longer bound by old structures. And so that's the kind of promise that's that's revealed um, by what it would mean for for the world to collapse, right? Um, and and that's that's one thing that the virus kind of shows. And then the other thing is is all the rot, right? All of the all of the shit that has led us here. So um, you know that's an interesting way to think about it. I think. Yeah. yeah. So. Um... Just to like zoom out on on Zizek and use my data bank of useless knowledge for sure. that. Um, one of Zizek's like kind of uh, repeated um, almost mantras of, of the last little while is I, I think the way he put it was capitalism and democracy are destined to break up um, because this um, this 150 year um, consensus of you know, we're going to have, um, you know, liberal voting, liberal sort of parliamentary or or or, or election based uh, governments, um, but they're going to be um, completely complicit in a market driven world. Um, uh, he what he's what his thesis is is that the problems that are predictably about to be faced by humankind. Um, have no answer in the market. So if you look at ecological disaster, the market is not going to make it better. It's only going to make it worse. Um, that's obviously the big one that kind of, I don't think, requires much more investigation. Um, he talks about um, uh, like refugee crisis, so like the crisis of stateless people. Um, and, you know, uh, he talks about um, uh, cybernetics and like kind of like the the sort of everything involved with like surveillance capitalism and, and also kind of just like um, uh, genetic research and all that stuff, which is going to kind of um, in certain, in certain extremes challenge what freedoms human beings have in, in their given societies. And he also talks uh, about, um, uh, Oh, there's one other one. Anyway, the point is he's talking about problems that are, um, uh, uh, global in scale, and and so the sort of the basic democratic um, type of government that we're comfortable talking about is probably too small in scope to deal with, um, and, uh, and and also he's talking about things that are um, challenges that market logic simply will make worse, and, and so you're going to need um, a different set of formulas to work with in order to deal with things like climate change. Um, it's never going to be solved by the free market. Um, and so I think that this is the kind of crisis in a sense that the left 
has been forced to wait for and expect it's it's sort of um reckoning to come with right is it's like uh you know you're not going to get it through electoralism you're not going to get it through reform or incremental reform you're going to have to wait for um a, a catastrophe on a global level that uh shines a light on the kind of lie behind um uh global capitalist um neoliberalism basically uh just the system in which you know there's borders for everybody uh except money um and so like you know there's just this constant flow of like speculative like um abstractions and whatever and that's what drives um the institutions and the structures behind our lives and we're all kind of just victim to that and they get to push us into whatever outcome that is and as we confront something like this and so um we we have to choose between life or death at the end of the day it's 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 either going to um force us to go back to work even when we know we'll all die or it's going to force us to abandon the idea that the only way to provide for everybody is through the free market so i think that's what he what what you're sort of getting at is that like this is like a kind of crisis point that sort of sort of brings everything back into focus and i think it's like for people like jejek and people on the left it's been a long time coming it's like when were we going to get this crisis <laughs> the yeah. 2008 financial collapse was kind of like one version of that and it only reinforced the exploitation um that caused it right like the bailouts all went exactly back into the same system um there was basically just appropriating uh more surplus from the working population to serve yeah i mean like so i wonder like i said earlier that i think like maybe this book is already a little bit dated um because it it seems like the hope that jizek has is very like first two weeks of the quarantine not you know week 9 or 10 or whatever we're on right now right where it seems like what has happened at least in the states which is the only context I'm particularly familiar with um has been that like a double down 2008 bailout happening now on a larger scale it's it's just appropriating the money from uh the welfare yeah, state like they're not even talking about UBI you know like they were they were talking about that two months ago they're not even talking about it i mean i could be wrong like this this might be a two year long crisis and we we could see what happens but um you know like like some of the points that that jizet brings up is it's like well you even hear people like donald trump talking about the possibility of a universal basic income at this point right? and like that's not happening anymore like, um as far as i can tell the republican plan is to like figure out how to let all the blue states go bankrupt so that uh conservative judges can uh run their their social programs and screw everybody's pension like that's what they're talking about now um and you you're right back to the same partisan divides right? you don't have this kind of uh unification you don't have you don't have Netanyahu reaching out to Palestinians anymore at least not in america um Yeah and I think I think the optimism of this book is always a bit in in contradistinction to what my experience has been of this COVID-19 thing is yeah. is that there there really hasn't it hasn't forced any reckoning and it hasn't really um 
led to like a, a kind of a, a new imagination um, beyond what, you know, Zizek and other leftists have called, you know, um, or have, have used the term like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. I mean, the, yeah. the optimism that this is the moment where that changes doesn't does not seem to be the case in my life. Um, I, I like that was the one thing that I thought was neat, right? like is that this is actually giving us a glimpse of the end of the world. Right. And it is the end of capitalism. Right. And 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 it does give you like even if it fails. Right. Just the fact that for a second um, it seemed like something else might be possible. Right. Right. Um, it, it, even even if. Right. Like like that's the other side of it. Right. Is that, um, you know, uh, Zizek's thing, it seems to be, is like, well, you know, it's, all, it's still always worth rethinking things and imagining futures, right? And and even if nothing comes of it, right, we had that glimpse that, oh, I see, like the end of the world that we imagine as being easier to imagine than the end of the capitalism, right? Like, actually, the two are the same. Mm. But, like, what comes after that isn't necessarily Mad Max, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's a different order, and um, and that could be communism, right? Uh, by another name, perhaps, but mm-hmm. it would be a kind of internationalism, a kind of um, you know, because we're going to have to forget about borders in order to fucking just deal with resources, to deal with you know ventilators and masks and shit, um, and we're going to you know which didn't really happen, but, but you could imagine what that would have been like, right. To see all nations kind of working together to deal with an existential threat. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of allows you a glimpse there. And, right. and, and that does seem neat. Mm-hmm. Like a, a neat insight about this, um, which I hadn't considered prior to reading the book, I guess. Um, but anyway, like what I was kind of thinking is that like, there's, there's really two chapters in this book that I think are actually worth reading. Like there's what, 10 chapters. Yeah. But they're like four pages long. Yeah. Some of them are only like four pages long in the book. So the book is like a, it says it's 146 pages. Like that's pretty generous. Yeah. <laughs> I think every chapter has two big black pages. I know for it. Um, and like, you know, with the title of the chapter printed on them. Yeah. Uh, you know, they padded this thing and, and like the, there's some pretty wide margins. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. Uh, but there are 10, there are technically 10 chapters to this thing. And, um, I think that there's probably two that are worth talking about. Right. And, and they basically do these two things like chapter two, I think, um, called it's, it's called why are we tired all the time? Yeah. And it, it sort of does a neat thing. It sort of, um, showing the way that the coronavirus has revealed um, the sort of like, you know, alienation, meaninglessness, crappiness of white collar jobs, basically. Right. Even the good jobs are shitty jobs, right, is, is what the coronavirus has kind of shown us in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the, the age of the living. I take it that that's the point there. And we can sort of talk about how that works. And then the other one that I think is probably worth reading is chapter 10, right? Where he sort of starts to kind of sketch out 
which is called, what is it called? Communism or barbarism or whatever? Yeah, a bunch of them seem to be called some variation on that. He does this typically annoying thing where it's just like playing with, yeah. Yeah, it's called communism or barbarism. Communism or barbarism, as simple as that. As simple as that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, he's right. The previous chapter is called Barbarism with a Human Face, which has some neat points where he just sort of like sketches out, you know, here's here's the thing that is bad that can happen, and then here's the thing that's good that can happen. Um, But the the bad that can happen we're all familiar with. It's, it's, It's basically just Naomi Klein, right? Right with a little um, Foucault or something like, I don't know, but, but just, you know, disaster capitalism, uh, austerity measures. Yes. You know, we, we raid the pension funds and, and, and screw the poor and expose the old to virus and let them die and and that kind of shit. But we, but we do it legitimized by, you know, smiling doctors who tell us this is the only way. Right. Rather than just meanly doing it out of cruelty. Um, and we normalize all the frustrating things about this this emergency period. So, like, the fact that you never stop working, but you're yeah. not really being paid to be at work, you know. And you never you never get to touch anybody. Yeah, like, you're just kind of, like, you, you really do just become, like, the algorithm that you're going to be, that you're afraid is going to replace your job. Yeah. Just become. <laughs> you just become that. That's nice. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so that's more like chapter two, right? So yeah. So let's yeah. Let's let's. Use that, that. And chapter ten is sort of the uh, the promise. So this guy, who I I I don't know this guy, uh, but his name is Byung Chul Han. Um, he wrote this book called The Burnout Society, which apparently Zizek uh, lifted this quote from Wikipedia. So he didn't read it either. So it's not my fault. Well, he quotes the actual book later, but for some reason he starts with a Wikipedia summary, which I thought was actually kind of awesome. But <laughs> All right. Right. So Han's got this book. It's called The Burnout Society, and he's kind of uh, putting forward this thesis, right, um, that people who are working from home, you know, like white collar, white collar workers, basically, uh, and sort of like gig economy workers who work you know, on computers aren't really members of a class in the sort of classical sense, right? So here's what he says. He says, today, everyone is an auto-exploiting, auto-exploiting laborer in his or her own enterprise. People are now master and slave in one. Even class struggle has transformed into an inner struggle against oneself. The individual has become the achievement subject. The individual does not believe they are subjugated subjects, but rather projects, always refashioning and reinventing ourselves, which amounts to a form of compulsion and constraint, indeed, to a more efficient kind of subjectification and subjugation. As a project deeming itself free of external and alien limitations, the I is now subjugating itself to internal limitations and self-constraints, which are taking the form of compulsive achievement and optimization. So this is the sort of picture of the, you know, guys like you and me who think of our lives as a project. We're sort of always looking to be better or whatever, right? And um, that sort of, this kind of a roughly existentialist picture of, of what it means to live, right, is then now actually becomes the mode of our work, right? Um, not yeah. 
life is a project, but actually the project of our life is just our work, which is just this thing that we do on a computer. We own the means of production. Like I write all the things that I need here. You know, I don't have to go to a factory to do it. And, and these are all the people now that are working from home, basically, right? Is that sort of the move? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like it's a it's a type of character that many um, like, you know, many very familiar theorists have talked about this kind of like Foucault's term for it was like the entrepreneur of the self. Um, you're like you're not an exploited manufacturing worker in a factory. But so like and, and, and the idea of that in Marxist terms is that like you have nothing to sell but like the work of your like of your body. So, you know, you sell your body and your time to the factory owner and you help that factory owner produce the thing that makes him rich. So instead of being that, we're something else. We're like, we, we, we don't just get to be uh, the functionary cog in the wheel that, that the factory owner tells us to be. We have to spend our time getting better, improving our resume Improving, improving our, our 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 social network or our, our professional network, um, constantly self-optimizing. There's a lot of interesting like investigations of this type of person that you can read about um, because it's like everything from like diets and like exercise and everything like are reflections of this kind of compulsion to make yourself a more optimized version, like a better. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it, it's. We know this stuff. Right? Like this yeah. is this. It, it's sort of one of those things where, like, it started out uh, probably as a kind of good idea, <laughs> and then it gets turned into uh, a kind of you know perverse treadmill of exploitation or whatever, right? where we we end up being our own. But I think that's that's the key, right? Is that like we end up being both master and slave, right? right? Nobody's telling us what time to get to work, and, and there's no there's no overseer that forces us to to move the little ratchet on the line, right? Um, we become that for ourselves. And you're 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 a far more brutal master than than the factory owner because right. not knowing what time is is the most impressive time to show up, you're always going to show up a bit earlier. Right. Not knowing how fast is is the acceptable speed to pull the ratchet, you're always going to pull it a bit faster. Right. So you're you're kind of chasing an invisible target, and you know your own sense of you know fear of being inadequate, fear of falling behind is what motivates you to kind of exact a crushing degree of exploitative work from yourself. Right. And it always outpaces. Like um, I remember reading that. Um, one of the big business innovations of, of the of the of either the aughts or the tens or you know like some recent decade was um, people figured out that if you gave people unlimited vacation, they'd take less vacation than if you gave right. them two weeks vacation. Right. So if you give them a set amount of vacation, they'll take it all. But if you say they can take as much as they want, they won't take any. Right. And um, that that seems to be the kind of phenomenon that Hans describing, right? Yes. That, 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 um, the kind of overachieving subject, uh, that you have to be to kind of continuously get the gigs. Right. Um, turns you into a kind of, uh, self slave driver, a tyrant. 
a tyrant of your of the self or yeah. something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that just seems familiar, right? And 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 even you know, even self-care, which seems like that was sort of like Foucault's response. Like care of the self is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, even becomes its its own weird project, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that that then like, oh, have you have you done your yoga today or whatever? Yeah. Right? Uh, and you, you're never doing it well enough. Well, like gym memberships. Yeah, gym memberships. Yeah. North America shot up in the '80s to like this absurd degree at the same time that yuppie kind of Wall Street culture right. that really became the the paradigm. So it's you know. It's this same logic of like, um, you know, you, you uh, like you want to appear busy, yeah, and you internalize that so much that you even use your 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 personal time to appear yeah. busy, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so it's so a moving moving on from kind of just overstating that point. Um, <laughs> right, yeah, we might have worked on that a little hard. Yeah, the thing that that Zizek does here, uh, I thought was cool. He he. He talks about sort of three types of exploited workers in global capitalism today, which one of which is our kind of self-tyrant um, white collar professional class worker who is nonetheless, although they're in the professions, they aren't protected by the old um, benefits of the of the professions. You know, you're right. Like that, that's you're important. very precarious. Yeah, precarious, yeah. which is which is sold as like um, I'm just going to plug this book. This is book by. Uh, I forget their first names, but Boltanski and Chappello called the new spirit of capitalism, where they, they sort of trace all this stuff back to May 68. Um, and, and it's neat, but, but basically, right. Like, uh, precarity is sold as flexibility, right? Um, what you wanted was, was control over when you go to work. Great. That means no one's ever going to ask you to come to work, which means mm -hmm. like you're always going to have to, um, Solicit for your opportunity to come. Uh, yeah. So, so like, I think I think that's key, right? Like that that's a development in a post-Fordist kind of capitalist world, right? That the professional class is exposed to precarity in, in new and fabulous ways, which actually ends up making them more efficient and turns their labor it deprofessionalizes their labor and turns it into gigs, basically. And nobody ever expected the professional class to be joining that group, joining the group of, of oppressed laborers, right? We, we always thought the professions would be where the sort of middle class would be. They were going to have to be um, destroyed if you're going to be a communist, and they were going to have to be used against the uh, proletariat if you're going to be a capitalist. Um, uh, so now it's, it's kind of confusing. And I think that, like, we see a lot of, of um, teeth gnashing on Twitter, uh, uh because most of the left are generally educated professional track people who feel embarrassment that they're not working class and uh, are frustrated by their lack of ability to understand why the working class doesn't vote left. So there's this sense uh, among educated professional type uh, careerists that they're not properly working class. They can't actually be properly left wing. And I think this chapter, what this chapter did that I've never really seen before uh, in Zizek, at least, is that it sort of addresses that split. And it's like we we have always had left wing professional class, uh, middle class people, and they've always felt a, a disconnect with labor. Um, but uh, 
you know, nonetheless, there's a, a, a sense of overwork, of, of burnout and exploitation that could, that should at this point in history be considered alienation in the sense of Marx's kind of um, description of, of uh, alienated labor. Does that make sense? Can you say more? Is that fair? Um, so maybe it will help if I um, outline the three uh, types of exploited labor that Zizek mentions in this. So well, before we do that, sure. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Maybe we don't have to do this before. But, uh, you know, he sort of starts by saying, like, look, if, if there's one, if there are two sort of figures of the of the coronavirus pandemic in the West, right? If there are two, sort of two characters that exist, it's the essential worker and the bored, quarantined person. Oh, yes. Right? right. Um, and, and then that sort of turns into the, the three things, right? But, but that, like, yes. that seems right, right? That, like, either you've got these poor fuckers who have to go work at Walmart for minimum wage, mm-hmm. right, because they're essential, or you've got... Um, you know, these, these schlubs like us who can work from home or whatever, right? yeah. or who got laid off and are hanging out, looking at computers all day and we're kind of bored. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, like, you know, there's, there's again, a kind of like, we're all in the same boat optimism from Zizek in a way, right? Like that, that these people, yes, they're different, but they have something in common. And, um, I mean, we could talk about that, right? Because like, it seems like the third category, correct me if I'm wrong, are all the people outside the West uh, onto whom the sort of traditional categories of exploited factory worker have been sort of dumped on, right? Because you've got the kind of service economy, the the people who take care of old people and the people who work in grocery stores, and those are the essential workers. And then you have the factory people in like China, you know, um, and to some degree still in the States, you know, in in poultry processing plants and shit like that, right? and then you have, and then you have this class of like very vocal, bored, uh, white collar people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's right. So just to be a little bit um, more, just to be more explicit, like so, there's class number one, precarious but privileged, like professional, educated person, uh, working on a laptop but being continually less. Uh, rewarded for um, all of the, I guess, yeah, just all, all of the work they put into their own soft skills and all the investment they put into themselves and, and getting continually less back for it over the years. Uh, class number two, the you know, the, the manufacturing class that predated them in America and now have been exported around the world uh, mm-hmm. to places like China and Mexico and Indonesia and whatever, where, you know, your work to exhaustion just in a physical sense. And, uh, you know, there's, there's not enough work for everybody. So you're basically forced to overcompete with other people just in terms of showing up earlier and, and, and working harder and never seeing your family. Um, there's clear exploitation and, and tiredness coming from that. And then third point, third, third tier is what you were saying basically is the, the frontline or essential workers, um, which are people who, uh, have jobs that can't just be done on a computer that are, you know, involve facing the public. Um, 
and this can be either in a service industry or in a in a more productive area possibly as well but um the thing that he highlights about it in terms of exhaustion is you're supposed to you part of your job is appearing to actually care for the people that you deal with so there's an exhaustion in the sense of like you know you're 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 cleaning this old person's teeth or whatever um who's not your family member who isn't nice to you but you've got to show up and act like they're uh, health and safety is like really important to you. And, you know, like you, you, that, that's part of your job is to actually care about the, the, the subjects of your work. Um, and, you know, there's a clear divide um, in terms of how exploitation works in each case. But I think that the frustration about how to connect um, as a working class between like, let's say somebody with an education in, in the professions and somebody who is a manual laborer, kind of dissolves in this analysis very nicely because it says like basically you burn yourself out no matter what that's the alienated exploitative part you're not all proletarians fine you know you didn't move from the country to the factory in order to sell your labor okay we get that that's 300 years in the past but there is like a, a shared um recognition of having to sell yourself to survive and that's like a certain part of Marx's analysis of, of exploitation. So, you know, it, it should be recognized and it should be taken advantage of at this point. Like we can't just continue to feel privilege guilt about being uh, precarious middle-class people. We have to focus on what uh, is universal in that uh, along with the other exploited laborers. Right. So that's, that's the optimism again. And I mean, again, like it's sort of again, in my life, it's like, oh, I don't really see that. But uh, but it probably, you know, it probably has uh, more and more relevance as time goes on. And again, it's it's made very explicit uh, in the context of the of the coronavirus, because, um, you know, uh, the the precarity of the uh, professional sort of computer bound person is put into overdrive right now. You've got a you've got to figure out how you still add value and you've got to optimize yourself to a point where, you know, it's kind of absurd. I think, you know, I don't know if CJ really says this, but like one thing also is like all of the little, all of the little perks, right. That go with that kind of lifestyle, right. Um, have been stripped away. Like you can no longer go and sit in your nice coffee shop and drink your latte in New York. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. like it, it's just reduced to the bare essentials of what you're up to right mm-hmm. you no longer work in a sexy office with sexy people right and and go out for a craft beer afterwards right like all of this sort of like bullshit lifestyle stuff that goes along with it like that that is sort of that part of that project of self-care and self-cultivation conceived of in an economic sense right um all of that stuff gets stripped away real fast when you have to stay at home in your sweatpants and do your stupid computer work, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like it's, it's no longer a fun dodge to sort of be always on the cusp of the next thing. It's just like, oh, God, I, you know, I have to get up and do this again every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, like, all of the little treats and the little perks and the little, you know, cultural markers of being a member of the fun, sexy class um, are immediately stripped away, right? And, and we're confronted with the reality 
of our economic position, right? That were in fact, um, as you put it earlier, like little more than than the algorithm that will soon replace us. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think again, just to to be the devil's advocate there, like the you know the sense in which that's true is limited, <laughs> because I think we realize now what the privilege is is that like you know the slightly better salary that I have uh, than the you know grocery store worker who has to go and face the public every day allows me to have a house with a back porch and sure yeah stuff like that so like you know yeah. they they. Uh, the 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 privilege is reorganized, but but they're still there, at least for now, um, and 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 it continues to be a barrier to you know universal you know, like a universal subject of of kind of Marxist uh, class consciousness, right? I think I think the the promise of this chapter is that you know class consciousness is possible even though we're not all proletarians, and I think yeah. that I don't know if that works i think i think that there are still proletarians and i think that they still are you know objects you know whatever it is the object force of history what is the term and um and i think that there is still like a there is still um a material separation um between yeah no like that's that's a good point like i think you know like i the idea that that um somehow people who have to work at the fucking chicken poultry, you know, the chicken processing plant are going to feel kinship with me. Like that's ridiculous. Right. But that more people like me might feel kinship with the chicken poultry people. I think that, that seems plausible. Right. Um, but I don't know if that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think like, uh, I think it's a, uh... It, 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 I think the way that you set up the, the the whole book is a good way to put this. Is is that like it basically, you know, throws everything into clear focus. And one of those things that it throws into focus is like, like we, the precarious professional person, have been experiencing our work as exploitative for a long time, but we haven't figured out how that makes us the same class ally as the exploited manufacturing worker. And I think the promise of this sort of equivalence is going to take more work than that. It's not going to just come out, come out because of the virus. Um, because, you know, like if I get to like clock out at five o'clock and have a cocktail, whereas people are like riding in filthy transit home after working with the public all day and then coughing on their wives, like they're not going to think that we're the same at all. Yeah. Um, so the privilege just rearranges itself in terms of like, I'm better sheltered, I guess, rather than more kind of like lifestyle cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I keep thinking like whenever I feel like, cause I, you know, it fucking sucks. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this whole like quarantine thing. But I always sort of remind myself of that. Right. Like I always, you remember that Simpsons episode where like the bum get, uh, Chester K, whatever his name is, like draws itchy and scratchy. Yeah, he gets yeah, millions yeah. of dollars or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He sort of says like, they're like, but don't you care about you know like the happiness of children everywhere? And he goes like, no, as long as I've got my gold house and my rock car, <laughs> you know, like ah, I'm a simple man, you know. <laughs> uh, that's all I need, and that's that's sort of how I always feel whenever I like catch myself sort of feeling shitty about this whole thing. Is like, well, you know, as long as I got my giant house with my freezer full of food and my 
internet connection to talk to my buddy Zeke. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, yeah. So I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it would have been a very worthwhile chapter uh, four or five years ago because I think that the 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 self shame, like the kind of like the it's like white guilt, but like class guilt, you know, of uh, leftist kind of professional class people. Like it needs to be confronted, and it needs to be like the bullshit needs to end. And, and I even heard this on like Come Town, like a, a podcast which doesn't deal with politics very explicitly, and like you know, they were kind of looking at like you know vaguely wealthy or at least sort of comfortable millennials complaining about lockdown covid lockdown and so forth and being like you know listen idiots like this is like you're not one of the people that has to fucking sell frozen like mangoes to you like <laughs> and yeah. be breathed on all day like like it's it you're forgetting the you're forgetting the divide and i think like you know, we so I think that there's something true also though that like you know it's it does suck, right? And and if you don't turn this sort of like mass recognition that things suck into into something, then it, all it does is suck, right? And then all it does is perpetuate the same structure, right? Unless unless you can forge solidarity. So like you know, I understand why you would want to see it as an opportunity to build to build kind of class solidarity or, yeah, or exactly. you know. And, um, and like, you know, like, like everybody's gonna, like, it sucks. It sucks staying in all the time. Right. Yeah. And like, um, and you could just let it suck or you could turn it into something. Right. And, and, and so, you know, like trying to figure out the ways in which you can do that. Right. Like just, just not saying anything about it and, uh, you know, shut the fuck up. So people have it harder than you. Like all that does is, is recreate the same right yeah exactly that's that's where that's the the same mud pit that we're already stuck in um yeah anyway that's like you know i thought it was an interesting breakdown because confronting that that sort of split within a global spectrum of of exploited workers is an interesting project like i think it's overdue to like really seriously deal with that is that we're not all proletarians, but we all are still involved in class struggle. And I think like some of us think we're like misunderstand which side of it we're on. Right. And, and not in the wrong, not in a bad way, like not in the sense that we, we think we're, um, that, that like we, we are actually the elite, but like, we don't know it. We just want to be cool and like underdogs. Like, no, I think we are exploited. We just don't really understand how that works because the only writer who ever dealt with this well was Marx and he didn't deal with that stuff. He dealt with bourgeois and proletariat and we don't have like, it's not, it's not I that, that simple that yeah. right anymore. Yeah, yeah. It might be that simple, but it's not that same. It's not, those terms aren't the ones. So, yeah. Like historically it might turn out that was what was going on, but what do you do with that right now? If you're, if you are a precariat person, yeah, not much. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I don't think I have, you know, much more to go with that chapter. I don't remember what else he said, but like, the, you know, the, the oh, yeah, I don't have any more it was a, it was sort of a highlight because um, other than Mark Fisher and capitalist realism, the, you know, the experience of the sort of uh, self-tyrant person, 
is missing from um, serious kind of, uh, not even serious, like approachable left-wing writing. Right. Um, it's either like, I feel bad to be this kind of person. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm a actually working class. And like, I think, I think this is more, this is a better project is to, is to, you know, acknowledge the sort of array there yeah. and uh, kind of work with it. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's go on to another point that um, this book deals with. So, Chapter 10, communism, barbarism, simple or communism or barbarism, simple as that, right? And the basic claim of this chapter is that, according to Zizek, coronavirus could and will perhaps lead to communism, right? Uh, not communism in any kind of traditional sense, but kind of what Zizek calls disaster communism, right? Mm -hmm. And so he sort of says, like, look, people laugh at me when I say this. They tell me... Um, you know, that's uh, ridiculous. We all know what's really going to happen. What's really going to happen is we're going to get capitalism, but worse, right? We're going to get stricter austerity um, measures. Uh, we're going to get that sort of disaster capitalism thing that we saw after Katrina and after 2008. In addition to that, we're going to have total control by way of surveillance, right? And sort of we're going to get the Patriot Act times 10, Um and, and in addition to that, <laughs> people are not going to see each other as comrades, right? Rather, what this disease has taught us to do is to see one another as a threat. And so we're going to have a sort of social milieu, which is hyper-individualizing and um, a sort of disgusting state of nature, which will sort of mimic the sort of com capitalist conception of the market. Um, so he sort of says, like, that's that's the sort of received wisdom on the left. And that's the scary thing. And that's, that's what everybody's sort of expecting will inevitably happen. But he's sort of putting forward the possibility that in fact, what we're going to get out of this is a sort of new world order um, that, you know, can only really be described as communistic. So I, like, that's a bold claim. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about that? Deep? Yeah, like I, I, I like this distinction between disaster capitalism and disaster communism. Essentially, what he's saying is, like, the it's not it. It, it kind of cuts through the question of like trying to push through welfare state reforms through electing the right candidate or through um, like uh, building a social movement. Like, what this does is like the state just takes measures and we condone those measures because they like help us through the crisis. So on the other side of that kind of um, like uh, of, of that, like breaking point on the other side of it, we realize we're now in a world where, um, you know, we condone massive state actions. And he, he mentions uh, throughout the book, like, you know, the, something that we've probably all heard in the media about China, right? Like, like that, like sort of this, this like authoritarian clampdown was like a better response than the kind of catastrophe we see from the Trump administration, which didn't seem to change every day. And, you know, there's like a, a leadership crisis basically. Yeah. Like that's what we want. We want the authoritarian clampdown. We want the authoritarian right? clampdown. Yeah. We want the results, right? Yeah. We want, we want to see, um, you know, a medical, uh, like a, 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 like a, a, a central committee of doctors take, take yeah. 
state to state and and basically you know allocate resources where they're needed um keep everybody alive and paid until you know they come up with a vaccine through their like super hospitals that they have built out in the desert and um and get us all through this and basically i think the idea for this and for any kind of anti-capitalist um looking at this crisis is that like you know when push comes to shove we're either going to have like a warlord do that and basically what, what will a warlord do they're idiots they're going to you know gather all the gasoline in one place and you know protect it with shotguns or we're going to have a central committee do it and that's going to be essentially communism at the end of the day it's going to be china it's going to be a stalinist russia it's going to be you know um the big boss on top with his you know university uh uh advisors who who who've done all the all, all the studies and the research and you know in this case it's not going to necessarily resent it, uh results in chernobyl it's going to give us you know um uh, universal basic income yeah yeah <laughs> Um, I don't know what, how I feel about this. Like, I think it's, I think it's essentially what is always said every time uh, a left-wing movement invests in a certain project and then sees it fail is that you turn around and you say, well, we just need catastrophe. And then, you know, necessity pushes through our project. Um, I don't see any evidence that that's happening. So, I mean, maybe what this does is it divests the left of this idea that catastrophe will save us and and we'll get our, 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 our goals achieved. Um, which I think would be a helpful change of perspective. I think like the idea has been gone on long enough that it's just like, well, you know, once capitalism collapses, then there'll be no choice, but, um, but like egalitarian socialism. Um, I mean, and that that kind of goes hand in hand with the idea that, like, look, we're not really working class, right? It's the people in the third world that will ultimately be the motor of history, and right, you know. Um, so, like, all we can do is wait, right? Right? Yeah. So this kind of comes from like the the last chat uh, paragraph or two that I thought was nice, right? Like, okay. we sort of like are trained to see um, any attempts to save humanity only as a kind of attempt to maintain the status quo. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, like, like the kind of drive towards catastrophe that you're talking about, right. Like that exists on the left, like, Oh, things will only happen if, if capitalism totally falls apart. Right. And the kind of acceleration of thinking there, right. And we should bring about the end of capitalism. This thing, right. In other words, any any measures taken by power now do nothing, like sort of maintain the status quo, do nothing but prop up the bad guys. Right. And the point is we should see this as an opportunity also, right? Like by saving humanity, we can remake humanity. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's, only, it's only in these crisis moments where we also have an opportunity to sort of push for um, a kind of, thing that everyone needs, right? And to think of think of the measures that must be taken as taken for everyone. And so again, like like now just talking about this, like I hadn't thought about this before, but like maybe that's what he's talking about in this sort of like 
the way that the, the gig economy worker can see themselves as one with the, um, the poultry farm worker or whatever, right? Like it's, we don't, we don't have to recognize that we're all suffering. We just have to recognize that we all need the same thing. Right? Mm-hmm. And we all, what we all need right now is a thousand dollars a month or whatever. And, and, and universal basic healthcare and, you know, um, and, and then when we come out of the catastrophe with those things, we'll have a whole different sort of political field within which to move than we had going into it. Right. Um, and like, that's an interesting claim. It's a, it's a different way of thinking of it than a kind of catastrophe where capitalism just falls apart. Uh, and then we pick up the pieces and, and build communism afterwards. It's sort of like, no, like this catastrophe when, when Donald Trump, you know, enacts to move towards, uh, you know, like he's not doing this, but, but jo- Boris Johnson nationalizing the rail system in, in Britain, which apparently he did, right? Um, or, or Doug Ford in Ontario, right? Um, I don't know what he's done, but it seems like people like him. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But yeah. you know, like, um, when all of a sudden it seems like everyone's on the same team, because what we just need right now, according to the experts, are things like uh, access to medical care or, or whatever and, and nationalized supply chains and shit like that, right? And uh, and even across borders, like a kind of international agreement that we're all going to share the masks. Um, you know, like that suddenly, uh, you know, you can't fight wars and you can't have trade. You know, you, you sort of override all the exploitative trade deals that used to exist or whatever. Right. And, and that, that becomes possible. Um, and it's not necessarily through an open revolution where like the, the working class rises up and, and kills uh, the bourgeoisie. Rather, it's it's the bourgeoisie enacting, you know, sort of or whatever you want to call the ruling class. Right. Like sort of enacting measures which then end up altering the field completely afterwards. Yeah, it's a. It really does come down to that, like that overused quote, especially by Zizek, of um, it's easier to imagine the end of uh, the world and the end of capitalism because it's really taking the COVID nineteen experience and say, and like re reexamining that statement through it. It's basically saying maybe it's actually. Uh, Maybe there's there's a there's a an end of capitalism like that we just start doing as soon as the end of the world looks like it's happening or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I mean, the like that's the that's the meat of it. I think. I think that's yeah, it's, it's 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 not it's not a stupid book. It's a really short one. Yeah. Um, and so I think for that reason. Why not read it if you were yeah. going to take a recommendation from me? So, anything else? Are we soliciting people to follow us on Twitter yet, or what? Uh, yeah, let's have let's solicit some people to follow. Uh, um, God damn it, bird fantasist. Bird yeah, fantasist. I just got a Twitter account. It's my first time. It's not true. I've had a couple. I've never really. I never really got Twitter, but I'm told that this is what you have to do. So my name is Bird Fanzies, at Bird Fanzies. Follow me on Twitter.